let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, as we uh, turn our attention to your word now, I pray that you would speak to us. Give us ears to hear what you have to say. Help us to hear with faith, to mix our hearing with faith and obedience that our lives would be marked by the things shown us in this text today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've come to the last chapter. We've looked at 12 chapters uh, in the book of Hebrews of an unparalleled Jesus Christ who has accomplished an unparalleled salvation for all who trust in him. The book of Hebrews is kind of one of the big overarching themes, probably the main theme, is that Jesus Christ is the high priest to end all high priests. We have no need of another priest. Christ is our priest. And he offered one sacrifice for sins to end all sacrifices for sin. Right? Jesus does not need to continually sacrifice for sin. We come to him once and his sacrifice is sufficient to take away our sins forever. Now he's ascended to the Father's right hand and from there he also does the other work of a high priest where he intercedes for those who draw near to God through him. So Hebrews 7.25 says, He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. Through Jesus, you and I, chapter 12 says we have come Not to Mount Sinai, right, which was the place where the law was received. We have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the heavenly city by faith with myriads and myriads of angels and the spirits of the saints made perfect and the sprinkled blood of Jesus. We've come by faith. We can't see this mountain, but we've come by faith. And someday in the future, we will come fully by sight to God's eternal city. Amen. Chapter 12 also tells us that we have been ushered into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The way that chapter 12 ends, it's a call to worship. Because we've come to this, we've been brought into this kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God acceptably with awe and reverence because God is a consuming fire. So as we come into chapter 13, that's got to be in our thinking. This is a call to worship. Now, worship is more than just singing songs. We just got done worshiping by singing. Now we're worshiping over the word. 
And when you leave today, I want you to worship in the way that you live. All of life is meant to be worship. Worship is a life given to God. No separation between the sacred and the secular. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whether then you eat or drink, even eating and drinking, do all to the glory of God. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, go to work, you interact with your neighbors, dads, you parent your children, you raise your kids, do all to the glory of God. And so this is a call to us to worship in the way that we live. So in the first six verses of chapter 13, we see three things we offer to God in worship. Three things we offer to our Lord, who is a consuming fire in worship. One, an act of love. Two, moral purity. And three, a heart of contentment. So first, we offer to God in worship an active, affectionate love for one another. Verses one to three, it starts with, let brotherly love continue let brother <clears throat> excuse me let brotherly love continue brotherly love the greek word is philadelphia that's why the city of philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love we're to let brotherly love continue i think it's interesting the the author says let it continue in other words don't back off don't let up on the pedal let it continue brotherly love is the kind of love by which christians cherish each other with deep affection for one another it's different from agape love which is the love of the will i choose to love you i'm going to be faithful to you no matter what this is having a deep affection and affinity and cherishing for one another Let this affection, this active love continue. Don't slow down. Don't wane in this. And we're given two specific ways the author tells us to let brotherly love continue. The first is that brotherly love continues by showing hospitality. By showing hospitality. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's an interesting idea or thought. The word hospitality literally means love for strangers. Love for strangers. It's the word philoxenia. You ever heard of if someone is xenophobic? They are fearful of foreigners or things that are strange. And philo, of course, is the word for love. So philoxenia, love for strangers. The author says, don't overlook this. Don't neglect this. I think it's interesting he uses the word neglect. We heard this earlier in the book of Hebrews when we were told to not neglect this great salvation that we have in Christ. As Christians, most here, probably everyone here, or probably no one here, I should put it that way, probably no one here would say hospitality is bad. But we might be tempted to neglect it. We might be tempted to overlook it. We might be tempted to 
see it as not that big of a deal or to get busy doing other things and so we, we neglect it. We drift from it. Now it's interesting, the reason given by the author to not neglect showing hospitality is that some have entertained angels in their hospitality. Probably a reference to Abraham. Remember Abraham in, I think it's Genesis 18? He and Sarah at their, in their, their, their home, their abode, their tent, and three men come. And Abraham jumps up and says, let me prepare a dinner for you. Fattened calf, the whole works. And it ended up being two angels and an angel of the Lord or the Lord himself. The word entertain means to receive as a guest or to give lodging to one as a guest. To entertain. We, don't, you, we almost only use the word entertainment now in the kind of a, like amusement. Like if you're entertained, you want to be amused. But to entertain someone in the old days meant to bring them into your home, give them lodging, care for their needs, and receive them warmly as a guest. I don't think the author is encouraging you and I necessarily to look, look for angels in our house or anyone who comes into our house to be wondering, is this really an angel? I think rather the possibility of this happening shows us how much God prizes hospitality. God prizes hospitality. And quite frankly, at a time when more and more people are moving away from each other, in isolation, retreating from others, Christians are to be moving, ever moving toward one another in love. Loving, sharing, inviting, entertaining in the old sense of the word. Of course, I realize that some are at heightened risk and are using extra caution in, the, in this time with COVID-19, this COVID-19 virus, and some ought to. But let me ask you, can we as Christians exempt ourselves from this activity of showing hospitality indefinitely? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not if we're going to be faithful to Christ. We must all live before God and seek to please Him. But we need to understand this, that Christians have always counted the cost and paid the price to follow Jesus. And it can be no different with us. Count the cost, pay the price to follow Christ. Think of what it cost Jesus to come to you and rescue you and welcome you, a stranger, to himself. It cost him. Romans 15, 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How did Jesus welcome us? Not reluctantly. Not keeping us at a distance. He welcomed us to himself. And so we ought to seek to worship God in our hospitality. The second way we continue in brotherly love is in showing sympathy for those who are suffering. Verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in 
the body, those in prison or those mistreated. I find it interesting because remember earlier in the book of Hebrews, these Christians did this well. They were rock stars when it came to caring for those in prison. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 10? Here's what the author said, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being exposed publicly to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I can never get over that. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property in serving those in prison because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The author seems to be concerned that these Christians, in their suffering, in their own trials, may turn in on themselves and kind of get in this mode of self-preservation. And so he says, remember. Remember those in prison as though in prison with them. How do you do that? By using your imagination. Right? By putting yourself in the skin of somebody else. In other words, use your imagination to place yourself in the skin, in the shoes of somebody else, in the prison cell with someone else, at the guillotine. Wow. On the run, on the rack, being interrogated. It's happening all over the world. So glad for ministries like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Door Ministries that, that make us aware of our brothers and sisters and all over the world that are suffering right now for their faith in Christ, that are in prison this very moment, that are awaiting execution right now, that are on the run right now, being mistreated because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now the reason given for this command is that we share a common humanity, right? Remember those in prison, as though in prison with them, and those mistreated, since you also are in the body. You have a physical body. You and I know what it's like to be uncomfortable. We know what it's like to be in pain. And so we're to not be so concerned with our own safety, our own comfort, that we are utterly incapable of putting ourselves in the shoes of those who are in harm's way. And so the first way we, we offer worship to God in our lives that we're given in these first six verses is we offer worship to God in sincere, affectionate love for one another, brotherly love. The second way we offer worship to God here is we offer God our moral purity, our sexual purity. Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and the marriage bed be undefiled 
for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Marriage is to be held in honor and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. I think the reason why he includes the marriage bed is because the biblical ethic for sexual activity is that it's good in the context of marriage and outside of marriage, it's always transgressive. In every instance. Outside of marriage, sexual activity is always sinful. We need to hear this today in a huge way. Think of how degraded marriage has been in our culture. And how sexually lax we are in our culture. And sadly, many professing Christians. We don't want to seem prudish and so we, we just side with the world. No, we can't do that. We need to hear this today. In our day, sexual perversion abounds. We need clarity on what marriage is as defined by God. Marriage everywhere in the Bible as, is defined as one man and one woman in a covenantal one flesh union for life. That's what it's always defined as. That's what marriage is. God's the one who defined it. He's the one who created it. He created it before he created the church. Marriage, right? In the opening pages of the Bible. And sexual relations is celebrated in the context of this marriage, of this biblically defined marriage. It's celebrated, it's wonderful, it's beautiful in that context. The Bible never speaks positively about two men or two women or five partners or an unmarried man, an unmarried woman, and so forth. But with the constant barrage of counterfeit messages, I fear that many, and maybe some here, have been numbed. And we're told to honor. May marriage be honored above all or among all. For decades now, Television shows and movies have normalized for us unmarried men and women living together, sleeping together, doing all sorts of sexual things together. And more and more recently, commercials and television shows celebrating homosexual partners and homosexual unions. And for many, it seems normal. And sadly, a growing number of professing Christians have fallen prey. But how did we get here? It didn't happen overnight. And Albert Muller in his book, We Cannot Be Silent, says that the sexual revolution didn't start with so-called same-sex marriage. Literally, it was five years ago, from June 26th, that the Obergefell decision was handed down by the Supreme Court, legalizing same-sex marriage in America. It didn't start there, though. Albert, Al Mohler argues that it was fueled by the separation of sex from procreation. 
with birth control, contraception, of course, abortion, egregious. Then, Mueller says, came the no-fault divorce, where divorce rates skyrocketed, even among Christians. Next was the normalization of cohabitation, men and women living together, and even seeing it as, as a good idea. Let's, let's try this out for a while before we really commit Once these things became normal, so-called same-sex marriage, to many, seemed like the logical next step. Of course, since June 26, 2015, when the Orbergefell decision was handed down, things have moved at lightning speed. My goodness. The sexual revolutionaries put the pedal to the metal. And now we, there's widespread confusion about what men and women even are, or if those are even legitimate categories. It's insane. And so marriage has been degraded clearly in our society, and the sanctity of the marriage bed has been degraded clearly in our society, but it shouldn't be among us. We should hold up marriage and prize it and cherish it Marriage is God's idea. He's the one that defines it. He honors it, and it is to be honored among us. We are, to, we, are to, we are to hold it up and esteem it highly. Think of the opening pages of the Bible in creation. The creation account, after each day, it says God says, good, 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 and then eventually says not good. It's not good. And what was not good? Man alone. We can think of a lot of reasons why men alone would not be good. But from God's perspective, man, when it's not good for man to be alone. He made for him a helper suitable for him. And he made woman out of man. Not good, not good. Or excuse me, good, 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 not good. Then he made woman out of man and very good. And what comes next is the beautiful reality of the one fleshness of marriage. Is that a word? Fleshness? One flesh union of marriage in Genesis 2, 24, which Jesus repeats in Matthew 19. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is to be held in honor. Do you remember where Christ's first miracle took place in the Gospel of John? At a wedding. Do you know what the final scene in the drama of redemptive history is? It's a wedding. Where the people of God are united to their bridegroom, Jesus Christ, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ephesians 5 Paul says Christian marriage is a, is a visual drama of Christ and the church. Do you think marriage is important to God? Massively. Massively. And it must be held in high esteem by all. The reason we're given to hold marriage in honor and for the marriage bed to be undefiled 
is one of judgment, and we can't overlook this. It doesn't say hold marriage in honor and the marriage bed must be undefiled because life will go better for you. It, it will. It probably will. Um, but here's what it says. Because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God will judge those who in their unrepentant, willful disobedience continue in sexual immorality the word sexually immoral that's it's a it's one word that's translated sexually immoral is a more general word that can can include a range of unlawful activities the greek word though is pornos we can we can hear the english word that comes from that right pornography fornication other things would be included God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen to what Paul goes on to say. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. The recalcitrant, hardened person who persists in unrepentant sexual sin will be judged. Will not inherit the kingdom of God and we cannot be deceived. There's so much deception in our day. We're all sinners and that's true. I mean, of course, in one sense, we are all sinners. But if there is unrepentant, continual, habitual sin, it only leads down a path toward judgment. God is a consuming fire. And yet, if you are in the hearing of my voice today, you're here or you are watching online, real time or later, and if you are caught in some kind of sexual sin, the Lord Jesus Christ right now entreats you to come to him and be cleansed and forgiven and set free. Jesus, our high priest, died not just for our little sins, as though there are any little sins, and not just for our respectable sins, as though there are any of those either. He died for the most despicable, most embarrassing, most shameful, most egregious sins. And you can walk out of here today free and forgiven with your sins removed as far as the east is from the west and washed So we offer to God in worship our moral purity. It is worship. It's worship. Finally, we offer to God a heart of contentment. Aren't they, each one of these, they're so relevant, aren't they? <laughs> we live in such a consumer-driven society. Contentment. Contentment. 
Verses five and six. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The love of money and things money can buy is a serious danger. And I love how the author here shows us why it's so serious, why it's such a serious danger. It's because when we are given to greed and we need more and more and more money, we love money, it shows that we are not content and satisfied in the God who says, you have me. You have me. Like the God who owns everything. It's a grave danger. It's a grave danger. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of money. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Here Paul saying many have wandered from the faith. I, it doesn't say this, but I'm just kind of drawing this. I don't know that that means they said, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. It just means that they were so captivated with cash and what cash could give them. And so they walked away from Jesus, the only one who could truly satisfy their souls and went after all of their desires. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Keep free from this deadly, deadly danger and be content. Contentment. The reason we're we're to be content is because If you are in Christ, he has pledged himself to you. The one who owns all the gold in the world and a cattle on the thousand hills and owns every square inch on the planet says you, you, I'm yours. I belong to you. He's keep your life free from the love of money and be content. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now it doesn't say 
Don't love money because, hey, you're going to get lots of money in heaven. You're going to be wealthy beyond measure in heaven. That's probably true. I mean, but that's not what it says. It doesn't say, hey, don't love money because if you show contentment with little, God will give you more. Maybe you've heard that before. And that might be true as well. It says, be free from the love of money and be content because God is your God and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Money may leave. It probably will. It often does. Especially for the discontent. It, it mounts up. It's like it grows wings, right? Proverbs 23, and flies away like an eagle. And those who have much are often very unhappy. I remember there was an article written, I didn't, read it back when it was, I think it was written in 2010 or 11, but I saw it a few years ago. An article written in the Wall Street Journal and it was entitled, Don't Envy the Super Rich, They Are Miserable. It's like, okay. <laughs> all right. Maybe not all of them, but as Christians though, we are, excuse me, we know that we were made ultimately for God and to be satisfied by God and in God. In a wonderful book, I would highly recommend. It's a little hard to read because it was written in the 1600s, I think, by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. But it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Listen to what Burroughs says. He says, my brothers and sisters, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of the world is not that you do not have enough of them, the reason is that you, excuse me, the reason is that they are not things proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. You were made for God. Your soul was made for God. The Lord of heaven and earth, the one who owns everything, says you have me. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. And this is what is going to matter most when the storm comes. Your money won't matter at all. When the seas are raging, that boat that is weighed down with paper cash will capsize. But the boat weighed down with God will weather every single storm. And this is what leads to confidence no matter what. No matter what. And that's why, that's why the author says, so we may, God says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And then we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So whether you're rich or poor, in good health or bad, whether you're surrounded by friends or foes, you can have confidence because the Lord is my and your helper. We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear what can happen to us. We don't have to fear what men can do to us. John Chrysostom, he was um, an archbishop in the early church, I think Constantinople. He lived in the fourth and early fifth centuries. I think he died like in 407 AD. He was brought before the emperor at that time to be banished. 
Listen to the dialogue between the emperor and Chrysostom. It's so powerful. Chrysostom said, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God, Chrysostom said. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from man and you shall have no friend. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. He he goes on to say, I defy you. There is nothing you can do to hurt me. That's powerful. That is, that is what every blood-bought saint of God may say. We have the same Savior. We have the same high priest who intercedes for us. We have the same glorious king who sits on the throne. What contentment? Contentment is not just sitting back and letting life just railroad us. It is a firm, settled, everything is okay in Christ because I have him. This kind of confident, content boasting is for those who have made the Lord their hope, their life, their all, their boast, not money, and not possessions. And so we're to give God a heart of contentment, satisfied in Christ. That is worship. Brothers and sisters, we live in dark days. Paul says, and I think it's in Ephesians 4, he says, make, make the best use, use of, best use of your time because the days are evil. And they are. And I don't say that to, to oppress you. I don't think I'm saying anything that you don't already see and know and experience. It's all the more reason for Christians to seek to live distinct lives that shine in darkness. To live distinct lives that seek to over, not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus said in Matthew 5, this is the light of the world saying this to his people. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're to live in such a way, a life of worship, a life given to God so that in the darkness, we light up the darkness, that we shine for Christ in such a way that others see it and give glory to God in heaven, our Father. Let's pray.